Welcome to the podcast series Shifting the Narrative, Women Leading Change by the Sahel and West African Club SWAC Secretariat. The Sahel and West African Club Secretariat is hosted at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, and is an independent international platform. It produces innovative evidence-based analysis and research to inform and support more place-based policies. SWAC's new MAPTA platform, Mapping Territorial Transformations in Africa, uses maps to explain key ongoing transformations in West Africa, including in the area of security. This podcast series tells the stories of women as civil society actors, activists, authors, leaders, health and humanitarian workers, youth representatives, traders and entrepreneurs in the Sahel and West Africa. We gather first-hand examples of their outstanding work within local communities, as well as their important contributions to advancing gender equality and positive change. These conversations also aim to better connect the Sahel and West African Club SWAC Secretariat's evidence-based analysis with civil society advocacy and action through dialogue and knowledge exchange. My name is Dr. Jumo Ayondele, and I am delighted to be your host for this inaugural podcast. Our first guest is Dr. Fatima Akilu. She is the executive director of the NIM Foundation, a leading crisis response organization, and the former director of the Behavioral Analysis and Strategic Communication Unit at the Office of the National Security Advisor in Nigeria, where she helped develop the country's first countering violent extremism program. Welcome, Dr. Akilu. Well, thank you so much, Jumo. It's really a pleasure to be here with you to discuss these issues. And it's a pleasure having you. So let's get started. Let's get right to it. I'm sure our listeners want to hear your perspective. Dr. Akilu, conflict has been a reoccurring theme in West Africa. We've seen that violent events have become more frequent and deadly in recent years. So clusters of violence in the Central Sahel and in the Lake Chad region have tended to spread across borders. SWAC has published a number of innovative analyses to improve the knowledge base on the underlying dynamics of conflict in the region. One example is the 2022 SWAC's report on borders and conflict, which highlights that borderlands in West Africa have become increasingly more violent and involve more belligerence. Another example is SWAC's latest report on political violence targeting women in West Africa, which demonstrates that women are facing unprecedented levels of targeted violence with worrying consequences for their livelihoods and survival. Now, given the work that you do in crisis response and management, what do you find most interesting about these reports? What are your thoughts as an actor on the ground? Well, I think, thank, first of all, thank you so much for uh, for the team that put this report together. I mean, it's so important for us that our practitioners on the ground to have evidence, uh, an evidence base for the work that we do, because very often I feel that we're working in the dark, uh, as sometimes we don't have the resources or the capacity uh, to do the kind of analysis that this report has done. Uh, when you look at borders, historically, really, borders have been there for, have promoted integration, uh, economic uh, advancement, um, uh, people across borders share cultures, and um, 
it's really um, uh, families live across borders. So uh, they have been, uh, activities along the border have been really, really positive in, in many ways for uh, an integrated, um, um, so they are artificial borders, if you like, because we have boundaries that are geographically delineated across countries, but borders have shown us that sometimes these boundaries are more artificial than we think. But in recent times, as the report points out, uh, borders has have also really um, helped us in uh, the way that we better understand the way that conflict has morphed, especially in the last uh, decade, the regionalization of conflict across border communities, the internationalization of, of these same conflicts, um, where um, people from different countries now uh, are learning from each other across borders. This is particularly so uh, from where I stand in the Lake Chad Basin. You can see uh, what has happened where you have all these different actors that have descended in these border regions and are fomenting political conflict. And uh, what the report really highlights is uh, the importance of understanding how these dynamics operate and the need for a better, more integrated, perhaps even more nuanced approach uh, to conflict. And um, I, I think in particular, what we've seen is that uh, when there's been response across uh, border communities or borderlands or borders, if you like, it has been mostly militarized. Uh, in Nigeria, Nigeria led an effort to bring together uh, countries that share contiguous borders together with the multinational joint task force, but it hasn't really been matched with a more civilian uh, type of response. And I think just going through this report, I, uh, it highlights the importance of that. And there are opportunities where we can do better planning in response to cross-border conflict. Yes, yes. Very, very important points that, that you have raised about borders, about winning the hearts and minds of, of populations and having more civilian-led um, programs and policies in really trying to stem the conflict that we see in, in borderlands. The, conflict, the, the report, the Borders and Conflict Report, also highlights that drivers of political violence in borderlands are heavily dependent on the social and political context of each region. To what extent does this ring true in the Nigerian Lake Chad um, Basin region context? Well, I, I think uh, it is actually central uh, to what we see in the Lake Chad borders. Because if you look at the socio-political context across those border communities, uh, first of all, if you look at uh, the groupings, uh, the ethnic groupings, uh, people share not only history, but they share culture, uh, they share uh, economic resources. Uh, they are vast trading routes across the whole Lake Chad historically, uh, where people have shared uh, resources in those uh, contexts. Now, let's move to the second report, the recent report on political violence targeting um, women. And this report highlights the important point that violence targeting women towards their political participation through fear and intimidation. What is your take on that? And how do you view women's participation in 
both formal and informal peace processes, especially in border communities. I think this report is very important and it's important that we're talking about it now, in particular for Nigeria. As you know, we're coming up to, uh, to an election year. Uh, so women's political participation is front and center on the agenda right now. And what we see in particular for us um, in terms of conflict in Nigeria um, and how it affects women is that the political actors are mostly non-state actors uh, led by Bokaram and more lately Iswap, and also we have uh, issues with banditry. And uh, for all those groups, they have uh, declared a war on women. In in many senses, um, they they have marginalised the participation of women, not just in the political space, but in society as a whole. Uh, in addition to that, they they have declared uh, women's bodies as part of the battlefield. So women are bearing the brunt. Uh, uh, they they, they um, kidnapped uh, uh, in in large numbers. They are used uh, as slaves uh, in uh, non-sexual uh, capacities, but also as sexual slaves. Uh, so we see uh, the shrinking of women's spaces. Uh, by these political actors. And this is happening in communities where women already do not have um, much platforms, where women are already marginalized. Uh, so this is particularly worrying because uh, I think a lot of these political actors in those spaces want to make women totally invisible. Uh, mm-hmm. And when you come to uh, talk about um, women's participation in the peace process, uh, currently, it's uh, the numbers are so small, and uh, this is particularly worrying. Um, there have been many attempts at negotiation uh, with non-state actors, uh, and uh, in, in there have been very few women at the negotiating table. If you look at uh, decision makers in peace and security, um, at least in, in my own experience within the country that I live in, in Nigeria. There has been very, very little uh, female participation. And yet we've seen the courage of women in this space. We've seen hunters, groups of women hunters that are leading men uh, fighting these non-state actors. We've seen women members of civilian JTF. We've seen women community leaders. We've seen mothers who are protecting their communities. Uh, We've seen how women have risen to protect uh, their children, to protect their families, to protect communities in the face of real adversity, in the face of real terrorism that we've seen uh, meted on these communities by both bandits and terrorists. Uh, so women are playing key roles, but in a very unrecognized capacity. Uh, there is a lot of peace negotiations that happen uh, within communities and you see women really being active and and coming up with multiple solutions and in many communities women are the gatekeepers of peace Uh, without women uh, there is no peace and uh, they they have also a much more expansive view of what peace means Uh, so if they are the scaffolding that holds the whole community together uh, when um, regional or state or or national uh, peace processes take place, 
then we have to ask the question, why are we not harnessing this resource? And we find also that when women are engaged in peace building at the very local level, uh, you find that this peace holds because uh, peace making is a very long term activity. And uh, it needs a lot of commitment, a lot of stamina, a lot of staying power. It's not something that you helicopter in and, and helicopter out. So what you find in these communities is that women are there for the long haul. And that's why when they are part of this uh, peacemaking processes, that it has better chances of success. And this really segues into the next question that I want to ask you, which is, you know, we do know, and as you pointed out, conflict shapes society at many levels. And for women, you know, the, the impact can be devastating, but it can also be a door to new opportunities. So based off of your experience and the work that you do, can you tell us more about how women can be key levelers of change and peace in, in conflict-affected areas? Well, I think that, you know, uh, conflict has come with a lot of, uh, uh, sadness, sorrow, devastation, and destruction. And within that, there have been pockets of opportunity, and uh, particularly for women. Uh, so, for example, what I see in a lot of communities that I work in, uh, there has been a more expanded role for women that never used to exist before. Women are stepping into spaces where they are perhaps vacuums, but they are holding their own. Uh, for example, there have been a lot of communities where uh, men have been killed. So women are now stepping into the breadwinner uh, role and uh, they are also uh, looking after their families and they are also now more actively participating in the economic space. Uh, I've seen uh, uh, the positive impact in terms of girls' education. Uh, because uh, conflict has devastated communities in terms of uh, not just uh, psychologically, uh, in terms of the trauma that they've experienced, but economically. So uh, there is a, a more understanding that education is important, that education is a pathway to a better life, if you like. So we see more and more women um, encouraging their daughters and girls uh, to go back to school. So the enrollment for girls in education has risen a lot in terms of conflict. And I think also uh, the way that conflict has changed the role of women in society is that um, we see women in a, as less passive in these very patriarchal societies and they have become much more active. Uh, they are struggling to find platforms uh, and voice, but in different communities, uh, they are making uh, huge, huge gains. Uh, we've seen changes, for example, even in the health sector. We've seen uh, men who didn't want their um, wives to go to hospital to have their babies because of cultural practices, cultural beliefs, and uh, and now we've seen more and more women who are becoming midwives and actually uh, convincing these men to allow their wives to have uh, safer deliveries in hospitals. So some of the changes have been subtle, but I think over time and in a generation, we will see that as a direct result of this conflict, 
the position and the role of women in some cases, in some communities, has evolved in a way and accelerate, accelerated in a way that perhaps might not be possible uh, as quickly as it's occurred without this conflict. But we also see uh, women uh, that are demanding more and more to be on negotiating tables and negotiating tables for peace. So women are really uh, going into spaces that were traditionally held by men where decisions are made. And so I think that is a big improvement, the understanding that when you have women uh, on a peace table, when you have women in decision-making spaces, whether it's a boardroom or in government, that the decisions are different. And I'll give you an example. Um, when I was in a senior position in government, uh, in national security, uh, I was uh, usually the only female on a table uh, full of men, usually security sector actors, uh, mostly military. And their own version and vision of peace was very different from mine. Uh, uh, they came from a mindset that uh, putting resources in uh, the military industry was a way to achieve peace. And I felt that the way to achieve peace was going, working with communities, working with people, going directly uh, to the places where conflict happened and that you can't do it without civil society. So I think just having a different perspective gives us a more, more rounded answers to these intractable problems that we have today. And yeah. women are the center of that. And thank you for sharing your, your experience in, in the security sector, um, especially as you were trying to, to, to build um, this program for Nigeria with countering um, violent extremism. So SWAC strives to better connect evidence-based analysis and data to civil society advocacy and action. How, in your opinion, can researchers and analysts work together with civil society organizations and women's groups to provide more contextualized research? I, I think for me, uh, as a civil society actor, uh, what would be very useful is uh, more collaboration. Uh, a lot of times uh, we see that research are carried out by large organizations and institutions uh, where we don't have access to uh, to make input uh, uh, till the report is actually done. And uh, very often we don't even have access to these reports. So there are a lot of uh, really well-researched uh, uh, documents that could provide us with evidence for our own planning and our own work, but we don't know how to access it. So I think um, sharing of uh, research material uh, on wider dissemination platforms would be a start. Um, I, I, uh, and I also believe that um, uh, using some of our data, uh, I, I think we as civil society are so much closer to the people. We're there every single day. We have access to wide range of data, but uh, this data could really inform uh, some of the uh, documents that are produced by large institutions. And we are always willing uh, to share, to collaborate, to learn. So those are the three things. I think it's important that we share data, that we are included in the research process, 
and that when uh, big organizations do research, that they make a substantial effort to make sure that civil society uh, gets access to, to this data, whether it's uh, by uh, advertising them more, uh, by having them on mailing lists that includes quite a lot of us. Uh, when we as civil society get uh, research reports, uh, for example, name. We share it widely. We put it always on, on our website so that other NGOs can also access it. Thank you, Dr. Akilu, for highlighting some of the concrete ways in which civil society can be more involved in the research process. This is particularly important when it comes to helping researchers improve the relevance of their work, which is ultimately key for better informed policy making. And this brings us to the end of our podcast episode. I would like to thank our guest once again, Dr. Fatima Akilu, the Executive Director of the Nim Foundation Nigeria for joining us. For more information on the publications referenced, they can be found on SWAC's Map platform or indeed on the OECD SWAC website. My name once again is Dr. Jumo Ayundele, your host, and this podcast was produced by the Sahel and West African Club Secretariat. Till next time, goodbye.